Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. My guest today started blazing an entrepreneurial path for himself for he could fully appreciate how much of a roller coaster an entrepreneur's life can be. A co-founder of Viva Real, an early online real estate marketplace in Brazil that initially bootstrapped its growth before raising $74 million, he eventually sold the business for $600 million. Having many lessons along his journey, he's now committed himself to helping other entrepreneurs thrive through channels, including his book, podcast, and latest venture, Latitude, which we'll hear more about. And it helps create paths for founders in Latin America to create top tech companies. I am thrilled to welcome to the show entrepreneur, angel investor, and a shark on Shark Tank Mexico, Brian Ruckworth. Brian, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Molly, thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. And I have hosted quite a few guests who actually came to the States to live the American dream. And you were raised in the US, moved out of the country as a young person, and have found your way to grow both as a global citizen and as an entrepreneur. And uh, just by reading a bit, I can tell it's been quite a ride. So I am excited for listeners to get an inside look into the many unexpected twists and turns that have shaped who you are as a human being and uh, why you do what you do. Yeah, it's a long journey and it's we're, we're still on that on that journey as we speak. So it's been it's been a fun ride so far, as you say, not without ups and downs, but, uh, you know, embracing every every moment. Well, take us back, earliest memory, family, what were you like as a kid? Yeah, I'd say as a kid, I was uh, curious, a little bit of a troublemaker, but nothing super serious. If I were to go back to my first memory, it's a funny memory. I was uh, in the backyard of my house in a little town called Sebastopol, which is a little hippie town uh, north of San Francisco and on the country. And I remember there was this metal fence that was in the backyard and there was this cow. And I remember putting my hand out and I think it was probably three or four. And this cow started licking my hand and it tickled so much. And then I, I ended up peeing myself and, uh, you know, from the, from the, uh, the, the experience and just cause I was laughing so much and, uh, yeah, that's my oldest memory. So kind of a silly memory, but. It's it's the you know it's the, the oldest memory I have, um, and I probably put that at about forty years ago. Wow, that's great. Did you have siblings? I had a, I have an older brother. Uh, my brother is three years older than I am, and we're we're very close, uh, and we you know we we talk regularly. So was it a competitive thing? I'm always curious with boys because they can be a bit on the uh, one up upsmanship. Well, I think that at some point. You know, we're we're both we were both very competitive with each other, particularly in sports growing up. Uh, at this point, I've um, you know I've I've uh, given up the fact that and and recognized that he he was a much better athlete than I was, and I'm I'm old enough and and don't feel like I need to prove myself. Uh, you know, in, in that respect, uh, he was a division division one college tennis player. Uh, you know, a three sport athlete. And I was a I was a decent athlete, but not you know I, I you know I didn't 
uh, wasn't able to compete on that level. Um, but, uh, you know, we, as we've gotten older, we've developed a really strong team dynamic and we're, you know, kind of have that rising tide lifts all boats mentality where we're really supporting each other. So I think probably 15, 20 years ago, there was a, a pretty important transition where it was less about competition and we, you know, became more partners, uh, in, in you know, in, in all the things that we were doing together. Yeah, that's really cool. Talk to me about the, your parents. You remember, were they big on school? I mean, were they trying to uh, let set you free or were they like, you need to do this, Brian? You know, I think that probably a mix, but I would say a little more laissez-faire in general. Like, you know, I wasn't much of a student. Uh, I do have a few memories of, you know, being being a kid and, you know, I'd, you know, be at the computer typing something. And my mom, who was very hands-on, like in general, she used to volunteer in my class. And, you know, she taught me that like, you know, you kind of, the, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, you know, if you're a parent and you're out there talking to the teachers, like just so happens your kids get a little bit more support. And so she was one of those very, you know, kind of, uh, you know, fighting for my, you know, my progress and making sure that I was really well supported. Um, and my dad was also, you know, quite involved in my life. Of course, they encouraged me and they wanted me to do my best. But I, you know, I never really deeply excelled at school. I wasn't a terrible student, but I wasn't a very good student either. So what was school like for you? I mean, was it small, Sebastopol, a small town? I mean, what was it? Yeah, like? it was a small school, uh, you know, middle school, you know, grade school was, you know, pretty, uh, you know, pretty kind of out in the country, small. And then I ended up going to high school to a Catholic school, which we were not Catholic, but it was the better school uh, for kind of academics and sports. And so it was an all boys school in high school, which, uh, you know, my brother ended up going to. And so I ended up going as well. So, I, you know, I didn't have a ton of friends, you know, but I was pretty sociable and and pretty gregarious. So I, I made friends, you know, rather quickly and, and uh so that was kind of, you know, that was in a slightly s bigger area. It was in kind of the the town next door, which was still pretty small, but, um, you know, larger than larger than the, the town that I grew up in. So how did the whole college thing? Was that a foregone thing? You will go to college. What was what were your parents ginning you guys up for? I think my parents just happy that I got into a few schools. Uh, and, you know, I, I recall visiting a couple, you know, universities. And funny enough, I, I ended up going to San Diego State, which it's actually become really hard to get into from what I hear. And it's more competitive. I don't think it was extremely competitive when I, when I had like a, you know, uh, an okay grade average. I think it was like a three, three point, you know, three or something like that GPA, you know, not like why I took the SATs once I didn't score off the charts. I did pretty good. Okay. And so, you know, I remember looking at schools and, you know, I think they were happy that I, you know, ended up going to school. I did, however, drop out of school uh, for a year and uh, and that, at that point, my parents kind of cut me off financially. And uh, and, you know, that was probably enough for me to want to go back and go to school when I was covering my room and board and I and I needed to get a job. So uh, but yeah, that's that, that was so, you know, I think I didn't get too serious about about school until probably like my junior or senior year when I went back to school after taking a year hiatus. So what was the dropping out? Say more about that. Yeah, I just I wasn't really motivated, didn't really feel like I was, you know, really learning or applying myself a whole lot, probably partying too much. And uh, and I ended up just, yeah, I ended up taking a year off and I ended up getting a job at a, uh, a company 
and it was uh, it was a, a business that was selling into real estate agents, selling websites to real estate agents, and marketing to real estate agents. So it was a very unglamorous job. It was like cold calling, telemarketing, and I would get up very early because I had to call the the East Coast, and I was in San Diego, and so you know I'd have to be at the at the at the workplace at ten a.m. or at, at seven a.m. to call at ten a.m. And uh, you know after six months of that, you know I. I I you know quickly realized that probably that wasn't what I wanted to do and that you know all my friends were having fun and I had to get up at you know 5:36 in the morning to get to work. So uh that that was uh you know definitely a wake up call for me, but it was a great experience and I learned a ton of skills being the youngest person in this company, which was kind of a startup that was really growing. And so it was a you know I think that it, it, it in retrospect it was it was a good experience and the right experience for me at the time. And my parents you know, they probably were freaking out inside, but they, they didn't, you know, it wasn't clear to me. And they were like, Hey, if you need it, you know, if you want to do something different, uh, you know, go for it and we'll support you. And so that was, uh, you know, they were good at kind of probably, you know, not, not pushing me how they, cause they kind of knew that if they tried to force me in a certain direction, probably they would push me away rather than, you know, kind of push me in the direction they thought I should be going. That's very good parenting advice for all the parents that are out there. And I, I, I'm, I'm curious how your dad did the, Hey, that's so great. And we're cutting you off. How did that conversation go? Probably, you know, my, I think that the, I don't remember, recall the conversation like specific, like very clearly, but you know, probably they delivered the message together, like just so you, to give you quite a picture of my, you know, upbringing and, and my, you know, I had very supportive parents. They were, both of them were psychotherapists. Uh, my mom had a practice for a long time. And then my dad became a, you know, a, a you know, small business owner uh, over time. And, and you know, every single time I talk to my parents, there's this recurring conversation, like recurring opening to the conversation where either my mom picks it up, my dad picks it up. And then there's this yelling to the upstairs or downstairs, Brian's on the phone. And so then they, you know, they, it's they're very unified and and they came to you know, they come together. Of course, I have conversation with them independently, but I would say ninety percent of the times when I call, which is regularly, I, I talk to both of them and they're both on the call. I love that. I think that is really phenomenal. Sometimes I think parents unconsciously compete to spend more time with kids. I think it's great that they uh, team parented. Uh, so. You do, you know, and I'm I'm wondering this entrepreneurial thing was that something that manifested when you were a kid, or when did you get the the sense of going off on your own was the way to go? Yeah, that that's something that, as long as I can remember, that I've been you know building little mini businesses and looking for opportunities, whether that's at school and it's the classic kind of buying and selling candy, and you know. From other little things, like I remember renting out, uh, I had a Chicago Bulls jacket and I would rent it out at recess because it was like a really cool jacket. And, you know, like very, just just kind of a mentality of like trying to figure out how to make a buck and hustle a little bit. And, and you know, the, the, the projects got, you know, progressively larger, but I did, you know, even, you know, throughout kind of high school, I had a little uh, classes where I taught swimming at my house. We had a pool which my parents always charged me 15% uh, off the top to heat the pool just to try to teach me a lesson that you have operating costs. So, you know, I, I learned the word entrepreneur at a very young age. I remember kind of 
flashing that word to my friends where they kind of te- gently tease me, you know, like I was trying to show off with the, with, with these fancy words when I was, you know, a, an adolescent. But uh, yeah, it's always been kind of something it, that I've been interested in and, you know, to, to various, various degrees, the projects just kept getting bigger over time. So I, I know I've ri- I've seen you um, write and talk, you know, you're not motivated by money per se. Um, as a, as a young person, what, what was the, what do you think your attitude around money was? I mean, let's, let, let me be real. I, I am motivated by money. It's not my, my only motivation or my, you know, maybe not my primary motivation, but it's, it's, it's an important factor. I like I liked, I enjoy making money. And I think that as a kid, I remember having some financial freedom. You know, I would teach these swim lessons throughout the summers. I was making 20 bucks an hour at one point, which is a lot for a 16 year old, you know, in 1996. And so I recall, you know, getting the the big speaker system in my car. I was the first friend to have a cell phone. I had the flip Motorola phone and, you know, we'd go out on a Friday night. I would be the one that was orchestrating the, you know, what we were doing because I had the phone and I was calling people. And so, you know, I think I, I you know, I, I invested in things that a 16 year old would want. And, uh, and that was kind of fun to have some financial freedom. So that was probably a motivation for me. Um, you know, definitely more money focused when you're 16 because you're just, it, it results in freedom, right? And then you, you have the, the freedom to kind of make decisions. And that's, you know, that's a nice feeling when you're independent as a kid. Yeah. That's really cool. Where in general, and you seemed like very sociable as a kid, did you feel like you fit in or did you ever feel a bit of an outsider? Of course, there's moments where you, you know, you're, you go through a little rough patches where you're insecure as a kid and, you know, you're, you're questioning, you know, I, I recall that, you know, maybe in middle school more. And I think that, you know, life, you go through phases, right. Where you, you know, you, you feel kind of, a certain level of, of comfort and, and, you know, you feel maybe stronger at some point. And then, you know, you're fragile because you're a kid and your, your self-esteem is being built still. And so I wouldn't say that I just cruise through hundred percent having no, you know, difficulties there, but I think in general, I, I was quite comfortable. I fit in, I made a lot of friends. I had a lot of friends. I, I think I was, you know, uh, I don't know if the, I want to use the word popular, but you know, I, I, you know, I was, uh, you know, invited to parties and I, and I didn't, you know, I didn't, so I didn't really struggle from that, that standpoint at all. And, uh, I felt, you know, I felt like I was, uh, accepted and, and part of the, the, the in group, I guess, which I, you know, is, it's a hard, it's probably hard to not be there. And, and I didn't really experience that for the most part. I do think that I, I had a, an understanding of, of the importance of bringing people in and, and not, you know, isolating people. And, and so I think that, Kindness was something that I was taught. And so, you know, in, in those, you know, it's, it's kind of a, you know, can be a mean, you know, mean environment sometimes at that age. And so I, I, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't try to push people out or create. And and I remember that being a, an important thing. And I, I had some awareness about that. So Brian, the whole, um, the college experience, you know, I don't know, people sometimes are obsessed with what they're going to be when they grow up. Were you like floating along? Talk to us. How did you end up choosing your path out of school? College was was probably harder for me than high school uh, when I moved away to college, and and it was partially, you know, just kind of it. It wasn't really the difficulty of being away from home, but just 
kind of figuring my my place. I think that that would be a time when I was trying to figure out where I fit in a little bit more. And, uh, you know, I think that it was just a, 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 a bit of a, yeah, a transition, I'd say, for the first couple of years. Definitely not a ton of clarity about like career path, except for I always was drawn to business. But then when I got to school, I just was not motivated to like take a bunch of business classes. And, you know, I ended up, it, it took me till about my third year of college to figure out what I actually liked to do. And that was, I was drawn in and interested by languages. And I saw language as a, a gateway or a bridge to culture, which I was always fascinated by, you know, by different cultures. And so that was something that, you know, I ended up taking uh, Spanish and Portuguese. Actually, I think one semester I took Spanish, Portuguese, and Italian in the same, in the same, uh, the same semester, which was it's totally crazy because there are three languages that are very similar. But I ended up, you know, becoming fluent in Spanish and Portuguese and and spending a lot of time in Latin America, which we can get to. So I think that that laid the groundwork for just my general interest. And I was able to find something that I could get excited about. And I think that's really what my parents wanted for me was to find something that I could actually, they didn't really push me in any direction, but they wanted me to be happy and find something that I could, that I cared about, that I could put energy into and feel like I was, you know, getting something out of it. So you graduate, you're a linguist, you're crossing cultures. What next? Yeah, I, I ended up going back to my hometown after college and I worked construction. My dad had a small construction company, which was, uh, you know, asphalt maintenance and you know, a striping business where we'd stripe, you know, lines on parking lots and driveways and things like that. And so I took a kind of a summer job, um, a, a nice mix of some hard labor, which is very difficult in that industry. It's, you know, it's hot out there on the asphalt, but my dad wanted me to have some exposure working on some of the crews. And so I did that. And then I had a little bit of back office experience, kind of a little bit of some, some sales experience um, as kind of helping helping the business a little bit. And really, my objective there was just to to work for some time and save some money. And a friend of mine who we had gone to Argentina together when I was in my undergrad, and we, you know, we did a semester abroad. And you know, him and I had you know taken a few trips together, and we had the idea of of driving our you know a car and driving south of the border and taking a road trip through through Latin America. Uh, primarily through Mexico. And I needed some money because I didn't have any money really saved up. And so I worked for six months, lived at home, you know, saved a little bit of money. I did remember I wrecked uh, one of my my dad's trucks and I had to pay for that. So that set me back a couple thousand dollars. But uh, but I was able to, I don't know, put six six or seven thousand dollars in the bank uh, over over those, you know, six months. And that was the kind of seed for me to embark on this journey. So in 2003, November, we left. I left California, drove over to Texas to uh, had Thanksgiving at, at an uncle's house, and we headed south. My my friend uh, Nick and I, without a, a real agenda, just kind of adventure. You know, we had a Lonely Planet book, which is our only kind of resource. No internet, you know, not not a lot of internet access, and we basically would just kind of look at the map and you know, point to a place and then we would just go there. And, and it was a, 
six-month adventure just crisscrossing Mexico, uh, eventually getting to Costa Rica and Central America. And that was uh, you know, a real, a real experience. We were kind of living on, you know, 15, 20 bucks a day, camping in a lot of places and you know, staying at, you know, cheap, cheap little, you know, hotels in these little towns. And uh, you know, the plan was to make it to Patagonia. And that was, you know, what I set out. I was like, you know, I wanted to go all the way down to the, you know, southern Argentina. And uh ended up getting to Costa Rica. Uh, my friend Nick ended up staying longer on the uh, in Costa Rica. And I decided to go visit a girl that I had met in San Diego. So my my uh, girlfriend at the time, Andrea, we dated for six months. My before I you know ended up traveling on this trip, she went back to Colombia, and so I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna go visit this girl who I had dated, and we'd stayed in contact. And I thought it would be a good kind of stopping point on my way down to Argentina. And uh, I ended up arriving in April of 2024. And uh, with plans to stay for a few months and then three months turned into six and a half years and we got married and I ended up living there uh, for quite some time. So uh, things don't always uh, end up the way you plan them. That is fabulous. So tell me about Andrea, how, um, how has she been as you've embarked on this whole journey? I, I know it takes a really strong partner, Brian, to pull it off. Yeah, I mean, when we started, when I when I started kind of my, you know, my entrepreneurial journey in Latin America, which was in, Col- in Bogota, Colombia, I you know I didn't know anyone, I didn't have any business degree, and for those listeners that don't really know much about like you know culture in Latin America, there's a very common question that you when you meet people, it's very kind of status and hierarchy driven, and so people you know ask you, um, you know, what what are you? So what are you? Que eres? And that's usually like a reference. I'm a doctor. I'm a lawyer. I'm, you know, a business person or whatever. And I just like, I didn't even, didn't even understand the question, you know? So I'd be like, you know, what do you mean? Who am I? I'm Brian. I'm from California. And so the only thing that I could do to sustain myself was, you know, I I knew how to speak English uh, and, you know, no one would hire me because I didn't have a business degree. And so I ended up starting a, a little English school called English Without Borders and, Andrea was fundamental in that because I legally couldn't start a company. So we actually started the company in her name. And she also had more of a business background and an administrative background. And so she helped me organize all the back office and, you know, and, and kind of like made sure that I was prepared for my classes. And, and so we were kind of had this team dynamic there and I did that for, you know, a year and a half. And it was how I paid my way uh, over the, you know, the, the, the time there I'd walk around the streets of Bogota, Colombia trying to sell my English classes to uh, executives in kind of the high-rise buildings on the main avenue. So this is the thing. It's um, the entrepreneurial, like you're just out there doing it. It just seems the ego has to be super in check. Like, you know, you're, you're doing what you have to do, but just talk to me. Was there ever a wrestle on this? Oh, do I have to walk street, you know, go down the streets and ask people to buy this? I mean, I'm just wondering what that's like internally. Yeah, you know, I, I was pretty comfortable with rejection, and actually, I, I had that great sales job when I was nineteen, which taught me a lot about rejection because it was like a telemarketing job, right? So it's like doesn't get really worse than telemarketing, right? So, um, you know, at least I had, you know, uh, you know, I was a, an English speaker, a native English speaker. There was clearly demand for people wanting to learn English. So, you know, I remember I, I got into this building, which was like this, you know, like main avenue, like you know, on you know, the, the, the main business center of Bogota. And I remember 
looking up at these big buildings and I'm like, I got to get into these, figure out how to get into these buildings so I can find potential customers. And I had this, this suit that I bought at the Salvation Army, a used suit. It was like slightly too short on the cuffs. So it was like, you know, kind of had like too much arm showing and you could see that the person was a little too small that, you know, I don't know, probably had died and like gave the suit away to the Salvation Army. And, uh, and I ended up, you know, kind of wiggling my, weaseling my way into the, these, you know, this building and, you know, kind of pulled the gringo card. I don't speak, you know, I don't speak Spanish and I got past security because there's a lot of security in these places. And, uh, and I ended up going from floor to floor trying to sell my classes and, you know, a lot of rejection. I think I reached the 16th floor and it was a stock brokerage and I happened to run into someone in the waiting room that was the head of human resources. And she was like, oh, we're looking for an English teacher. And so she invited me to come back and I pitched the classes and, you know, I had a bunch of interest from these executives. And then I was like, oh shit, now I have to figure out how to teach, uh, teach English. Cause I'm not, you know, and, and I, I, that was a whole new thing I had to learn. I realized quickly that I was not a great teacher, particularly for people just starting out. Uh, and I, you know, I didn't have like the fundamentals or the, the, you know, the kind of the, you know, the, the process for how to teach. And, and then I ended up hiring a teacher to teach the classes. So, you know, I think that, you know, necessity is a great kind of, you know, it forces you to, to be creative and, and, you know, come up with solutions to problems. So I ended up, uh, I ended up, you know, building that little business and that, you know, that finance, but Andrea was very critical in that process. And, you know, she, uh, she really, when it came to even grade, like grading the, you know, giving the grades and and giving feedback to the students. And so she was like everything that was behind the scenes and I would be able to show up and kind of make my way in the classes. So it was a, it was a humbling experience from, you know, many standpoints, but, you know, I, there was never a point where I was like, Oh, this is something I can't do. Uh, of course there was some moments of discomfort, but uh, you know, I, I, I've always been relatively comfortable with discomfort. That's a very, that's a great asset to have that as something innate because a lot of folks, everyone talks about it. You have to be uncomfortable. Discomfort is where the growth is. I mean, I say it every other day to people to really do it though, is a different kind of thing. Talk about when you're partnering with your spouse, wife, girlfriend, I mean, this, what do you learn about yourself? Because there's, you know, families that work together. I mean, it's, that's not an easy thing to do, you know? Yeah. We went on to, uh, we, 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 you know, I ended up, that business was not like super valuable and it just paid the bills. And then I ended up starting another business and, you know, that was something that, uh, Andrea ended up joining me as kind of the, you know, office administrator and she helped with like, you know, payroll and HR and other things. And so we, we actually did work together for several years, which, you know, we quickly realized I'd say after two years, it's like, Hey, this is something that probably puts unnecessary friction on our relationship. And so there was, I think, a point where we kind of got to a point in the business where we could afford to kind of hire other people. And we were also thinking about having, you know, family. And so that was something that, you know, was, you know, we struggled to have kids. It took us a couple of years to get pregnant. And so probably the added stress of building a business, you know, these things affect, affect you when you're, you know, you're trying to, you know, you're trying to get pregnant and you're, dealing with all kinds of stress at the same time, it, you know, it, it probably hindered us and, and, and created an obstacle for us. And so at one point we just decided that, you know, 
I think actually we finally got pregnant and then she was working like, and we had a, our, our first son and she was, you know, there working like pretty soon after she gave birth. And that was like very hard. And so we found someone to replace her after the first couple months. Um, but yeah, it was something that was definitely stressful and, and her family, her, you know, her, her parents, um, uh, it was actually her aunt and uncle who raised her, um, worked together. And we saw that like being pretty hard sometimes. And you, you get home and you just talk about business the whole time. And, and it's, it, it, you know, it can definitely affect your relationship. And so we, you know, we, we definitely made a conscious decision to try to separate things and, and not bring work home with us every night, which was happening quite a bit. Cause it's kind of your life in the beginning. Yeah. When you do have you know, kids, much less super young, Brian, and I know that's an all in thing. So I, I am curious your own sense, cause there's a guilt, you know, are you doing enough of it? Right. And just how did you, um, find your way through that? And it's you know hardly a precise recipe. I know. Again, I was super fortunate that I had my parents who were very like systematic and how they did things and like very thoughtful and, and I tried to model a lot. You know, I, I, I had a very good, I had very good role models in that way. And so, and we had a very communicative family, you know, it's almost like shocking sometimes for other people when they like hear me have these conversations and like actually open up and share some of my difficulties and, you know, ask for advice and, you know, so that level of discussion and communication is probably not a typical family, you know, like it's not, I don't think it's that common in, in a lot of families, at least, you know, from what I know, at least to the degree of, of, of you know, kind of involvement, you know, weekly conversations. Uh, you know, I was talking to my parents and I was living in another country. And so despite the the geographic separation, we we still, you know, talked very regularly and, and, and discuss things. So, you know, I think that, uh, that that's one thing uh, that I think was, you know, and, and I think one of the, you know, the, the challenging things in our relationship, in, I think in the beginning is that uh, in the case of my wife, you know, she had a much different upbringing uh, than I did. Uh, you know, she had a single mom, never met her dad, and then was raised by her aunt and uncle. And then her mother went to New York and, and was a nanny uh, when she was a kid. So she like, you know, not until she was a teenager, did she kind of actually spend real time with her mom. And so there was, pro- she was probably less equipped for like the communication and like feelings and being able to kind of articulate, you know, what what's going on. And so that was something that we really worked on together, I think, is we kind of found our, you know, it's, we've been married now for 18, you know, almost 18 years. So we've, I think we've just really worked hard on that and, and figured out and, you know, and I've had to learn a lot of things about different culture too. And, and, you know, so we've, we've, we've become really, I think, adept at communicating and, and figuring out what, you know, how do we navigate some of these differences in our, in our upbringing and our culture uh, and kind of merge what the best of, you know, some of her experiences that she had growing up, which, you know, were quite different than mine, but there was a lot of value uh, that we could bring into the relationship. So, you know, I think that uh, in terms of like a, any, really tangible things that we, you know, that we, um, you know, I think there's some applicable things in business, just like the whole over communication thing and, and, and designing specific moments that are set aside to kind of, you know, force a little bit more discussion or like make that just a natural part of your day uh, and, and make time for it. It's something that we did. We had, you know, we don't do it every day. Uh, We haven't done it as, as often, 
but we we you know we had kind of coffee time at 4 p.m which is actually something from her culture uh, they call it once so there's like a phrase where you have tea or coffee kind of like tea time but you know in colombia it's coffee because it's colombia and we would sit down and and you know design that time to just have a conversation and just no agenda but just like what's going on with each other and try to take 30 minutes to like you know just check in with each other and i think that those kind of things served a lot for us to just improve our communication over time that's so huge and i love that idea i mean people try to make date nights or whatever but to do day to day have a checkpoint that's really huge uh, talk about the just the cultural learnings. You know, California is a pretty generally big melting pot. So I, when I lived there, I just felt very open. But I am curious, you know, your learnings as you tra- traversed around, particularly Latin America. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things in the beginning in our relationship that was challenging was just like the language because, you know, we both, I speak pretty good Spanish. She speaks good English. But there's just some nuance when you're, you know, you're communicating. I mean, I remember, you know, um, like there's certain phrases that, you know, are expressions that, you know, that mean something slightly different than they sound. And so like becoming, uh, you know, very keen to understand, you know, what the, what the intention is behind the the messaging. So like decoding sometimes small things. And, you know, I think that, you know, in the U S it's a, it's a, it's a relatively direct culture and, you know, and there's, you know, and there's, you know, in Latin America, that's, there's, there's an interesting kind of framework for communication that is uh, it's, it's actually, there's a Hispanic marketing professor, a guy by the name of Felipe Corzeni. And I remember I read his book when I was just starting my first business and it talks about the, the communication you can think of at in Latin America as like an, uh, a uh, kind of upside down triangle where like at the base would be up here, like the, you know, and when you ask a question, you would end up giving like a, a, a more kind of wider response that kind of sets the stage. So what's your favorite color? Oh, my favorite color is, you know, red because I grew up watching the 49ers and then I ended up having a girlfriend with green eyes. And then, you know, but then, you know, uh, you know, I love the ocean. And so blue is my favorite color. And so you're giving this rationale, this explanation of things uh, in order to kind of get to a, you know, a conclusion, which is actually very rational because you're, you're building up your, your rationale and your argument for why you, why you believe something or why you think something. And in the U S that is kind of seen as like beating around the bush or like, even in some, in some cultures, like in, you know, in Holland, you'd be like, are you, what are you hiding from me? You know? And like, you know, and so I think that understanding some of those cultural differences uh, probably, uh, and this happened to me in business too, uh, to the point where like, now I'm like a little bit less of a direct communicator because I've had to adapt to some of the different cultural you know, the differences in, in the markets that I've operated. So I think that uh, those, like, you know, those are things that you learn over time and you eventually just kind of, you know, you, you work towards. Yeah. Talk to us about the Viva Real. It's a great story and uh, I'd love folks to get a glimpse of it. Sure. So Viva Real was kind of like for the US audience uh, or, you know, if you're listening from another country, it's it was there's a company called Zillow, Zillow or Trulia, which was like big real estate marketplaces. And I ended up, when I moved to Colombia, I ended up, you know, trying to find a place to stay and I didn't have, you know, a, an apartment. And so I ended up, you know, going in the classifieds and I ended up meeting a real estate agent and I got kind of taken advantage of in the process. There was no kind of central repository of all this, you know, these real estate apartment listings. And so I ended up, 
having a really bad experience and that kind of motivated me to try to build something which is a central marketplace of all the real estate. So that's what I ended up building. Viveral was you know, a place uh, we ended up focusing on Brazil was the, the core market we started focusing on. And we, you know, we aggregated all of the inventory of all the real estate in the country. And we had a, you know, business model that was an advertising business model. So that company, you know, I ended up when I first got to Colombia, I ended up meeting my business partner uh, because I had uh, ended up paying a fine for overstaying my visa. And I met him at immigration. And since I was teaching English, I had a, a student that wanted to learn German and he had a German passport. And so I kind of, you know, uh, engaged him in conversations while we're waiting in this line. And turns out we both had an interest of staying in Colombia longer. And he had some kind of a bit of more of a technical background. So Thomas and I got together on this business idea and we ended up uh, scaling this business, um, you know, focusing on Brazil. We realized it was the largest market and that business, you know, uh, became a pretty large company. We, you know, we ended up merging with one of our competitors. It was a thousand employees, tens of millions in revenue. And then we sold that company uh, in 2020. We signed the deal in March, 2020, um, so kind of in the wake of the of the of COVID, and uh, and that uh, was a successful transaction that we, you know, that we, uh, you know, we're lucky ten year journey, and uh, you know, I was fortunate to make some money and make some my shareholders money, and uh, be able to reinvest back in the the startup ecosystem in Latin America. Yeah, it's great, and I want to encourage folks. Um, the, the story is the more of its detailed in um, Brian's book. And there's so many moments, but if you could just take perhaps a few of the highs and then the low lows, because I know there's a huge range and I was just really inspired by how you were able to confront and somehow like pull it all together when maybe it really didn't seem like it was going to work. You know, it's funny, the high highs, you would think like, oh, you know, selling the company and then all of a sudden seeing like a bunch of money transferred in your bank account. That was definitely a high point. Don't get me wrong. But Funny enough, the things that stick out to me most are like the small wins, you know, like the first customer and, you know, and and you kind of cherish the, you know, almost like the glory days of like being the complete underdog where you're able to overcome these obstacles where no one thinks it's possible. Everyone has has you kind of slated for failure because it's like ridiculous that an American is going to go build a real estate business in Brazil and, you know, with a German co-founder, like don't even speak Portuguese very well. Like, you know, name doesn't even make sense in Portuguese. Like there's just all these, you know, uphill. So I'd say that like the collective, like, you know, small wins, I, I think that like are what I cherish the most. And just, you know, moving into our, our first office when we, you know, we took a big gamble and we didn't have the money and, you know, you know, hiring the first, you know, the first team and then, you know, and 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 making things work, raising your first capital from investors that like, after two years of just like slugging it out or like the, you know, that someone bets on you, you know, I'd say those, those are like the things that stick out the most. And then in terms of the lows, you know, it's, it's funny because it's, it's a bit ironic because at, at one point, you know, we were very successful and there was a bit of a challenge in terms of like, how do we take the next level of growth? And we got to a point where, you know, we had kind of failed at, at fundraising, we went through a, a difficult moment. We had merged the company with our competitors, one of our competitors, and I became the, the executive chairman of this combined company, which was quite larger. And it really de-risked the business. It made us like kind of an unstoppable business uh, that we would, you know, probably lock in for sure some kind of, you know, some kind of sale because the business was so valuable at that point when we merged with a competitor. But ironically, like just the stress of 
you know, merging this business, you know, not, you know, ha- having to fire, you know, hundreds of people just to kind of find efficiencies. And I know that you've got some M&A experience there, but like just that stress of, you know, and, and it's funny because despite us being super successful, I think that like, you know, I wasn't kind to myself in the process. And I put so much pressure on myself to like elevate to the next level. And, you know, and, you know, then you have different pressures from different shareholders where the early shareholders are, you know, expecting some liquidity. The more recent shareholders are like, you know, have a different time horizon. And I think the whole, and then I transitioned from CEO. And so, you know, I I remember a board meeting where I was just so stressed about the whole thing. And was the deal, is the deal going to go through? You know, are we going to be able to raise capital or we have to sell the business that I developed these, you know, in a physical manifest manifestation of the stress hives all over my body from, you know, from just like the difficulty. And so I think that was probably the low point, um, which is funny because, you know, if you take a step back, there's like success is kind of consolidated and solidified to some degree. Like, so from the outside, you'd be like, that's, it's dumb to be stressed about that, but your brain is a powerful thing and, and you can fixate on things that, you know, and so I think that learning to take a step back and, you know, hopefully the lesson there for me is that, you know, it's okay to put pressure on yourself and, you know, it helps you kind of figure out how to navigate the difficulties. But like at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's kind of a game and it's not a life or death situation. And sometimes as entrepreneurs, we oversize the impact of things not working exactly how we think. And then that creates massive distortion and and stress uh, to, to go along with it. So that was probably a, a big learning experience. And a moment that was very stressful in, in my professional career. Thank you for sharing that. And I don't wish that upon you. Um, I had Navid Lalani on the show recently, and he talks a lot about the mental health of entrepreneurs, founders, and it can really eat people up. And he's really gone uh, to great lengths to help normalize people getting help. Who did you reach out to in those moments? Sure. Well, I ended up um, having a panic attack and ending up in the hospital from the distress. And I thought it was a heart attack, but it was a panic attack. And and so I remember being, you know, in the hospital and they, you know, hook you up to the ECKG, you know, and and like I literally thought I was dying. Um, that's how powerful the brain is. So first person I called was my co-founder who happened to be in Sao Paulo. And he came and picked me up when I realized, you know, they gave me something to kind of calm me down. And then I, I ended up he drove me straight to the airport because I was scheduled for a flight back to California from Sao Paulo. And at this time I was living in California. And I remember at 30,000 feet, I was on the plane with internet access and I just started. And I remember Googling this article that I had read years ago. Um, and it's called, um, God, what's it's from Inc. Magazine. And it's the psychological price of entrepreneurship is the article. And it talks a lot about, about the mental health uh, challenges of entrepreneurs and I just remembered the article and I just like, I'd read it years ago and it was a really interesting article. And I remember there was uh, a a few quotes in the article from a doctor by the name of Dr. Freeman. Dr. Freeman is a world renowned specialist on mental health and entrepreneurship. And so I Googled him when I went to found the article, I found his name and I Googled him and it turns out he he lived 45 minutes from my house in California. And so I sent him a message from 30,000 feet and I'm like, Hey, I need to talk to you. I need some help. I need to figure out this stuff that's affecting me because if I don't address it, I don't, I don't want to ever go through something like this again. So I ended up, you know, meeting with him. I had a few sessions with him. 
you know, I was fortunate to have that kind of like safety net of my parents. And so I was able to work through a lot of stuff without, you know, the help of a psychiatrist. Um, and so, but I ended up meeting him and I ended up, you know, by the second session we had, I was like already pitching him on my book and I wanted him to be a contributor in my book. So I'd kind of sorted out my own personal stuff and he ended up becoming a contributor in my book and he wow. shared some of his research with me. And, you know, I've, I've since hosted sessions with him and a handful of, you know, hundreds of entrepreneurs uh, talking about anticipating some of the things around mental health so that other founders can, you know, hopefully in- embrace some of that stuff and be more equipped to, to deal with the stress of, of entrepreneurship. Yeah. Wow. That's a bit crazy that you messaged him from the plane and he lived 45 minutes in your house. That yeah. you can't make up. No. Fatherhood. Tell us a little bit about that journey. What do you learn about yourself and fatherhood? Look, I think there was a very clear moment for me when I had my son where I had not been home many nights and I'd been working weekends just to kind of get the business off the ground. And so there was a just a moment of clarity for me in my journey where I, I said, okay, I'm going to make a pact with myself to be an involved father. And so what that decision was that I would be home four days a week during the week at dinner time and, you know, try to be present. I don't think I was like as present as I would have liked to be. I, I have like a recollection of like kind of half being there in some nights and I was have my phone there and I'm getting messages. And, but I think that there was a, a, a very deliberate decision to, to, to make that change and, and, you know, and kind of find, try to find a little bit of balance and be aware of, of that, that that's important. And then the second thing, you know, when I had my, my daughter, we ended up moving back to, from Brazil to California and I made the conscious decision to actually step down from CEO of my company because I, I, I knew that I wouldn't have that time back with my kids. And so that was a really hard decision because your ego is very attached to your job. And I was a CEO of a company. I was, I was paid well. I was, I had to give, I gave some stock that I, you know, normally would have had. And so I guess that the you know realization that I that I had with that is I saw a few people in their careers that were wildly successful, but they had really, really screwed up personal lives. And I just realized that that like no amount of success could, you know, be worth it in terms of having, you know, just not a happy family life. And and I, you know, and I saw my my upbringing and I had a very you know, a very kind of like supportive, you know, supportive, um, you know, you know, parents and 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 friends and family. So, I guess that the the realization there, I think, is that you know, having the clarity of you know, one, you're not going to get back that that time, you know, with the, your kids, and so you know, the walking my kids to school uh, in the morning, dropping them off at preschool, you know, volunteering in their classroom. That was something that I wouldn't have been able to do if I had been, and and, and I think that the the impact that I that I'll have on them at that time is is pretty meaningful. And so, I guess the 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 main realization and the thing that I'm most pleased by, and I can maybe see if I can dig into some regrets or, or things that I didn't do well, but was the just the consciousness and clarity of that and and being deliberate and being long term in my thinking about that. Is something that I'm proud that I that I did during that time, and uh, I still try to find a balance. I'm I'm back to working a lot, and you know I got up this Sunday and I 
work from eight to nine before my, you know, or seven to eight before my kids got up. And, you know, then I worked for 30 minutes when they were there and they were so upset because I wasn't playing with them. And, you know, so it's, you know, it's, there's nothing perfect, but I think in general, creating enough awareness about this and, and, and being deliberate about it. Yeah, that's kudos to you. And I, I, I know that it's not easy. And for folks left listening, I think the message is you, you've got to decide um, what's worth it to you. I know there's a lot of things you've learned through mistakes, but is there a particular something, uh, Brian, that if you could do it over again, you really would do it differently? I think on the, you know, on the, the, you know, the, the business side of things, there's one thing that strikes me that, you know, there's been a couple of moments where like, you know, I'm not proud how I behaved in, in certain conversations or, you know, one particular thing that just kind of comes to memory is that when we had made some important transitions in our business and we'd merged with a competitor and I had to kind of reshape the board, I recall a few discussions I had with one of my board members in particular that I ended up having to kind of, you know, uh, remove them from the board because of this reshaping of, of, you know, the future. And, you know, the, the person was really affected by it and they were really, they they were, you know, they, you know, I kind of, I didn't address it directly and it, and I, and I end up kind of just like burying the conversation a little too much. And, and, you know, I think the lesson for me was oftentimes we were trying to protect the other person by not communicating directly about things because we don't want to hurt their feelings. And then the negativity actually compounds and there's more damage done because you don't address it and kind of let the air out of the balloon early and then it pops because that conversation didn't happen. And so I think that that, you know, I remember after that incident it was very stressful and it was damaging. And I, my relationship has never been quite the same with the person and, you know, repaired a little bit, but like very hard to kind of reinstill the trust a hundred percent. And, you know, I acknowledge that I, you know, a lot of it was my responsibility there. And so after that, I remember that I, you know, every year I do a word, uh, a word of the year. My, I've been doing this since we were, you know, 16, I think in high school, like maybe before that, but I still have records back where my, my mom would, uh, you know, we call them intentions. So we'd write out our intentions for the year. They're not resolutions because they're not necessarily like measurable, but they're like intentions for the year. And then there's a word that you, you know, that would be kind of summarize the year. And that year, I remember the word was courage because, and I remember reading the book, The Courage to Be Disliked, which is a great book if you haven't read it. And that really gave me a little bit more just confidence to, to, to say it how it is and, and address the uncomfortable, you know, because the discomfort compounds when you're, you're pushing things under the rug and, you know, sweeping under the rug. So I think that was uh, probably the, the thing that comes to mind as the, you know, the, the biggest, you know, business mistake that was painful and affected, you know, relationship. Yeah. I appreciate your being upfront about that, Brian. And, you know, the truth does set us free. We all know the relationship underpins the highest performance of the ability to be so thoughtful. And I love this word of the year. This intention is really a very powerful notion. Um, I'm going to think I'm going to add that to my um, list for the year. We could go on and on. And so I, I just want to close with a couple questions. Um, one is um, for your kids. What do you wish for your kids? Yeah, I think it's pretty simple. Uh, just that they are, you know, one that they find something that they become passionate and enjoy. And, you know, that, that, you know, 
I hope that I can support them and kind of foment whatever thing that they path that they find that, you know, makes them happy. And, and, you know, I think that's, it's kind of a, a generic thing, but it's, it means more than anything to have them pursue whatever they feel is like fitting for them. And that makes them happy. Um, you know, I think that, that they become, you know, just world citizens that uh, develop empathy and are kind people. I think that at the end of the day, like that would, that's probably my biggest job as a parent. And, uh, you know, if, if, if they can, if, if I can help them achieve that and, you know, and realize their potential there to be just great contributors to, you know, to, to society by being kind and, and empathetic to others, you know, then I think like 90% of my job is probably done, um, you know, and, and that they're, you know, happy and believe in themselves. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, that's, I think that's what most parents want. And, uh, you know, it's a big task. It's not easy. And there's oftentimes where, you know, there's, you have to try to separate the things that, you know, you want and, you know, and, and, you know, there's a, there's a reason why like, this is a, a hard thing for a lot of parents because people try to sometimes live vicariously through their kids and, and have like their own frustrations that are unfulfilled. And, and so I think that I'll just be happy if I can separate my own kind of personal things and really truly, help them develop whatever, whatever it is that they, that they want to be, or, you know, and that leads to their happiness. Yeah. Well, those kids are very lucky as parents. Um, one thing we didn't get to talk about latitude, uh, just a couple sentences on that. We're going to have you back on the show to talk about that, but I'm really blown away by what you're doing with your latest endeavor. Yeah. The, the quick summary is that, you know, during 2020, as we were waiting for the antitrust to review our deal and approve it, I, I ended up just getting out there and helping uh, entrepreneurs. I wanted to distract myself because uh, I had no control of this process. I ended up taking 150 Zoom calls from early stage entrepreneurs, tech entrepreneurs in Latin America, Mexico, Colombia, Brazil, you know, Argentina, all over. And I realized two things. One, there's an incredible amount of talent in the region. And you know, the second thing I remember, there's still a huge gap in understanding some fundamental stuff you know, in my process of building a company. So in this next business that I, you know, I started after Viva Real is I really wanted to do something that I could see myself doing for 10, 20 years. And so the purpose had to be really important to me and, and the impact piece. And so I really believe that entrepreneurship is one of the strongest levers for economic progress and social mobility. And so at a high level, what we do is we first started just helping through kind of live sessions on topics, you know, from how to fundraise to you know, go to market strategy for your business, you know, building tech teams, just basically pulling in my network and trying to democratize more access, some of this content that was useful and things that I wish I knew when I'd started. And then that led to uh, a business because we had really no business model in the beginning. We did that. It was just kind of, you know, um, you know, almost like an NGO at that point, because we were just helping founders. Um, we built on top of that two kind of business units. One, we built a venture fund where we're investing in uh, the most promising early stage uh, venture backed startups in Latin America. And then the second thing we're doing is building kind of the stop startup operating system uh, for 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 venture backed companies. So we we have a product to create uh, the company formation. So when you're starting your company, we spin up uh, you know the 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 holding company and and do all the kind of the the things to to create the business. And then we also have offshore accounts for you to you know manage your cash um, and you know take in investment. And then we've got a handful of other products that we're doing basically to try to reduce friction for early stage founders so they can focus on building their business and not worry about the bureaucratic things that 
uh, are necessary to run a business in Latin America. That's amazing. Well, one last thing, you know, you shared very generously. What was it like for you to share your journey today? I guess I'm pretty comfortable with it. You know, this is going back to the comfortable discomfort. Uh, this is not, you know, it's not the first time I speak publicly about things. And I think that in order for us to really kind of elevate the next generation of entrepreneurs, you know, we have to destigmatize some of these things like sharing. I had a, a panic attack, kind of embarrassing. The thing is that it's just a, a very intense experience building a company. And so it, it's kind of similar to when we were trying to get pregnant. And I remember realizing like, oh, I'm, I, there's actually other people that are can't get pregnant and it takes them, you know, th- two, three years. And that was kind of a taboo subject when, when we first started having kids. But when you realize that it's pretty common, and I think the same realization happened when, you know, you know, you, you have conversations around the stress of building a company and, you know, how the mental health plays an important role, that you realize that it's actually quite ubiquitous. Finding a little comfort in the fact that you're not alone is an important thing that hopefully, you know, destigmatizes a little bit of some of these challenges along the way that entrepreneurs face. I appreciate you folks. Latitude.com, no E, you can learn more. And Viva the Entrepreneur, I have to say, I've just started it, but I highly recommend this chance to learn even more from Brian. Uh, Your humility and your openness are a wonderful example. I really appreciate the commitment you have to making a big difference for others. Um, And your own groundedness really inspires me, Brian. So thank you for being part of the solution, helping all of us to be safe, seen, and heard in our true and very best selves. You take good care. Thank you so much. And I love what you're doing. And I think it's important to share that information with other people. And and so we're doing a lot of the same things, which is trying to to elevate others. So uh, thank you for inviting me on the show. All my privilege. Okay, folks. Um, so great. Let me just close with a thought for the week from Brian's book, which I thought was awesome. If you want money, ask for advice. If you want advice, ask for money. And finally, my appreciation to all of those who make this show possible. The awesome crew at Voice America and the epic Eric Patton, who's behind the scenes supporting every single episode and the driving force for the Say It Skillfully website and social media. And that's a wrap, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Brian's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too.